Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From The Bachelor to The Challenge to Love After Lockup, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Friday Night Tykes among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, game shows, all of that stuff. Not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is one of the most respected and skilled producers and executives in the unscripted genre. This wonderful individual has worked on such shows as The Real Housewives of Potomac, The First Family of Hip Hop, Southern Charm New Orleans, Girls Cruise, Toy Hunter, and Beyond the Pole. She has also served as an adjunct professor at Montclair State University and guest lectured at Yale. We are going highbrow this episode, folks. Currently, she is the Vice President of Development for WeTV. Please welcome Ashley McFarland Bowie. Thank you for being here, Ashley. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That may have been one of the best intros ever. Highbrow. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. For you, yes. Oh, yes. that's hilarious. I, I, I'm so excited to have you, and I've got to ask you right off the bat. You are a graduate of the Howard University, correct? Oh, yes, yes. The illustrious Howard University, and this is the year that when I say that, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Like it's such exactly. an incredible experience. So I, that's why I started off with that. How excited are you to have Kamala Harris as the vice president of our United States? Beyond, beyond. It is such a proud moment. Um, I mean, I feel like everyone, every pundit on CNN and MSNBC, MSNBC has spoken to like, you know, just this moment of being a little black girl and seeing Kamala Harris um, on the stage and, and, witnessing her take this role in this position is so powerful. Um, but I, I honestly, I just feel so vindicated. I feel like as a Black woman in America, to finally see Black women, we're talking Stacey Abrams, we're talking Keisha Lance Bottoms, we're talking Letitia James and Kamala Harris and so many more just really getting the props that they deserve because Black women are such a vital part of the American experience, of American achievement. And for so many generations, we have been in the footnotes 
of the stories. And it's nice now to see someone like Kamala step right up to the forefront and to have someone like President-elect Biden announce to the world that, hey, we need to protect her. Like, that's a strong statement. We need to protect Black women. Their contributions to our culture and to our global community are far too valuable for us to continue to shortchange them. So it's it's a powerful moment. It's a historic moment. And I'm really, really happy to be an alum with her. Yes, I co-sign on everything you just said. And yeah, I'm very excited <laughs> to, to see what, yes, what VP Harris and uh, President Biden will do. I mean, you're right, Stacey Abrams, uh, you know, like the vindication after being robbed of the governorship in Georgia yeah. to kind of become the face of flipping it blue. Like how amazing of a story is that? Fantastic. It's, it's fantastic. And it's such a testament to humility. Um, she could have like run out, run into a corner and cried for decades over that loss because it was, it was stolen from her. Um, but instead, you know, she just took a moment, regrouped and realized what her true talents were and how she could contribute to really pressing ahead. And it, it, we saw it in, in a historic way. And it was fantastic. I firmly believe the future is female. Like, that's a fact. And I don't think it's just Black women. I think women as a whole are really starting to be more bold about how they can contribute to the conversation, how they can activate the movements that are needed in this world to have a shift in a more progressive direction. And I think people are listening. And I, I think this this old regime of uh, men calling all the shots, I think that I think that is happening. And we are definitely moving into an era where women are going to be much more uh, vocal about things that need to happen to make the world a better place. I concur with that. Who do you think is driving that? Is it politicians? Is there things in entertainment that are driving that? Um, sports? It's the media. I mean, we work in unscripted television. We know how powerful <clears throat> that TV screen is. Um, I, I think <laughs> I think media and entertainment and Hollywood has we figured out a way to monetize on this idea of women being on top. Um, you could see the trend starting almost like six or seven years ago. You start seeing even more cartoons with female leads and female heroines. Um, and the Me Too movement, I think, just kind of like shoved that agenda right to the forefront. Um, and everybody jumped on board because I mean, with anything else in America anyway, if you can make money off of it, then it's something worth getting behind. And I think we have managed to um, make female feminism and, and supporting women uh, lucrative. And I think the media is certainly pushing that narrative. And, and thankfully, it's to a good end. And I think women are stepping up and delivering on the promises that, that are being pushed out there. Well, let's talk about telling women's stories a little bit. So <laughs> as the as the vice president of development at WeTV, um, you know, you are shepherding, you are producing, you are developing lots of projects that are um, from that female POV. Um, WeTV mm -hmm. Slate includes such shows as Braxton Family Values, Marriage Boot Camp Reality Stars, Growing Up Hip Hop, that entire franchise, Mama June From Not to Hot, Love After Lockup. Um, tell me a little bit about WeTV, where they're at right now. It's a, you know, it's a brand that has kind of evolved multiple times over the years. Where is WeTV at right now? 
WeTV, I think we have found um, a niche in the unscripted space. We only do unscripted television. Two nights out of the week are our originals. And we are always sort of supporting real, raw, shocking, and edgy storytelling. We're looking for real people who are strong characters, who have layered stories, and will offer that transparency and that vulnerability to let viewers go along for the ride of, of wherever that may go. Lots of twists, lots of turns. Um, we tend to lean into that like breaking of the fourth wall and really allowing our talent that's on camera to just be fully human, flawed and all. So when you watch shows like Braxton Family Values over the past few years, um, and even Love After Lockup, you don't ever really feel like there's a heavy producer's hand behind that storytelling um, because WeTV has, has done a really good job of cultivating projects and shows that, that feel real and that like let everyone just kind of let loose and be honest and um, be redeemed at some point along the way, but also hit rock bottom when it happens. And, um, and we don't celebrate it, but we offer a platform for them to present that portion of themselves to an audience that's in love with them. And then the audience is invested in them figuring it out. Do you like that style of you use hands-off producing? Yeah. You've also done shows for Bravo as a producer. And, and I've done different kinds of shows too, where you're more hands-on versus, you know, the more fly on the wall. What is your mm -hmm. kind of like, what, what do you like better? I think personally, I prefer the fly on the wall, hands off. I'm a purist and I, I was sort of raised in television. My mother was a production, um, was a producer. And I, I was taught that storytelling has to be rooted in, in the truth. So I don't really prefer, you know, having that heavy hand of the producer highly scripting someone's real life just to make it entertaining or, or that sort of thing. Um, but over the years that I've worked on a myriad of, of shows on different networks that have different mandates and different brands and different viewership, um, I have learned to appreciate people's enthusiasm for some of the more scripted shows um, that feel a little bit more, they have more of like a soap opera feel to it, a telenovela sort of vibe to it. Um, because then you're you're crafting out characters and, and then it starts to feel a little bit more fictional. And some people mm -hmm. like that escapism. And I think reality television has somehow figured out how to get permission to use real people and create fictional characters out of them. And somehow yeah. those real people seem to be on board with it. So I get it. But as a personal preference, I, I, I'm, I'm a purist. I like old school documentary style where you're just kind of like going in to get get the, the get to the root of like what's going on and, and allow viewers to see behind the veil. We are in agreement. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. Yes. There's nothing better, right? There's nothing better than mm -hmm. you, getting the camera to a point where the cast, no matter whether it's a family or an ensemble cast or a show like you guys, you know, have marriage, marriage boot camp, reality stars, mm -hmm. that they forget that the cameras are there. And, yeah. you know, and, and you start to see that kind of raw emotion where story mm -hmm. develops. Like that to me is when unscripted is at its best, right? 
then it's exciting also, particularly with um, celebrities. I, I tend to do or have done a lot of shows with celebrities, and we're so used to seeing celebrities perfectly packaged and presented to us, um, even on social media, where you think you're going to get more of a real version of them. Um, when you're able to get into a reality series with them and you see that they forget the cameras are around and they they allow you in, it's a very precious moment. Um, and if you're a good producer, um, you know how not to exploit it, but how to embrace it and, and how to make them feel comfortable enough to continue to deliver um, at that level. And, and you get some really good content. Let's talk about another show on WeTV, one that you okay. over, oversee, Beyond mm -hmm. the Pole. <laughs> tell tell me about, yes, tell me about oh, Beyond the Pole. Yes. Beyond the Pole, honestly, it's like, a, it's, it's one of my favorite shows. Um, so full transparency, I'm a Christian. I'm like a, a faith-filled woman. I'm, as you mentioned, I'm a little highbrow. Some people think I'm a little conservative. Um, but I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I love the Atlanta culture. Part of the Atlanta culture is the strip club scene. And for me growing up, it wasn't a big taboo part of our culture. It really was just like, it was just easily infused into like everyday life. Like it was hard not to know someone who either used to dance, was about to dance, or was bartending at the club. And Growing up, leaving the Atlanta area and learning that, you know, dancers really get a bad rap um, for being basically, you know, street women and, and whores and, you know, the, the dirt of society. And when I, when I got to WeTV and I saw that they had um, just aired the first season of Beyond the Pole, which I believe was an acquisition, I saw such potential in it because Shante Page, who developed and created it, she she tapped into something that was very raw, very real, um, and that I think people could appreciate if it was packaged and presented the right way. Um, she was delivering an opportunity for dancers to be seen as full human beings and for us to get more information about the subculture of women really trying to survive and a lot of them figuring out how to play a game that was rooted in exploiting them, a lot of them have figured out how to get on top of it um, and, and be bosses in it, um, which is inspirational, motivational, and, and I think stories worthy to be told. So this is a project, we premiere our second season at the top of 2021. We have a special coming up in December uh, where we have the ladies self-shoot during COVID because all the clubs shut down. So we were curious right. how that was gonna impact their lives. Um, and I think people are going to be really surprised at how we take that first season sort of DNA of like getting into the nitty gritty of club life and, um, and elevate it so that we get some really smart stories, some really compelling emotional tales of women who are living beyond the pole. Nice. Let me ask you a question as a storyteller. Do you enjoy going out and telling a story that is completely foreign to you. Like obviously you said, you're a Christian. And so the strip club yeah. kind of that, you know, that world is very foreign to you. And like I've done, yeah. you know, I did the Rachel Zoe project and 
you know, my joke is always like, I, I didn't know the first thing about fashion. I had to buy $1,500 worth of clothes before I even met her. So do you enjoy that kind of like opening yourself up to the brand new world? Yeah, I think it challenges me. And I think it really, um, it, it forces me out of my comfort zone and it makes me use my, I have a gift for storytelling and it, it makes me apply that gift to areas where I would be a little afraid that I'm not prepared and it makes me trust the gift and not trust myself. Um, a good example of that is when I did this show Toy Hunter um, for a few years for the Travel Channel. And I remember when they were looking for showrunners for that project, I, at some point, someone questioned me and in today's climate, I'm not even sure if you can ask this question, but they were curious as to how a black woman in her 20s could tell the story of a white man uh, in the mid middle America who hunts for toys and how the audience for a show like this would be primarily, you know, older white men. And I was, I was surprised at the question because I was just like, it's just another story I'm going to tell. But I understood people who don't have that gift, not understanding how versatile it is. Um, So with that show, I was, I was almost like, I was just, excited to prove to everyone that this could be done from my perspective um and we had a great time we we ended up not even dealing with you know the demographic of it all and really just tapping into the universal tale of toys um it was a show similar to like american pickers where this gentleman um jordan himbro would travel the country and eventually the world we went global by four seasons um and dig through people's stashes of old toys, like old Barbie dolls or G.I. Joe figures or whatever um, in their basements and attics and see if there were any value to, to what they had been storing for years. Um, and a lot of times we found out that there was, and we really leaned into telling the nostalgic stories of the toys. Um, when we got to someone's house and they had like, you know, a Thundercat figure from 1982, we could dig into like, how it was designed, why the cartoon was so popular and groundbreaking at the time, and really kind of allow everyone to come together from all races, from all cultural black backgrounds and different age groups um, to connect um, to something that everyone's familiar with, these toys, and, and, and experience that sort of fun, free um, joy that toys bring you. So that was, that was definitely an opportunity I had to explore a world that I was not at all familiar with. I mean, I'm, I traveled mostly through the mid, the middle America, and then we went overseas. And I met people and engaged with families that I probably would have never talked to um, otherwise. And I was able to help them tell their stories. Yeah, toys are one of those things that you know everyone at some level is familiar with. Toys it doesn't matter, you know, who you yeah. are, or where you're from. Yeah, it's a uniter. Yeah, and that um, that was really my answer to the question: How can you, as a young black woman, tell this story and I was like um I think all of us can relate to toys like I'm pretty sure as you were saying that I was like I was like G.I. Joe Thundercats I was like were you at my my childhood home like did you you raid my parents yeah it was so nice to connect on toys like with strangers with people who are so different from you and you're sitting and you're just like both going gaga over a cabbage bed doll. 
<laughs> Maybe that's uh, what we need to do now in politics. We'll just have Trump and Biden and their team sit in a room and we'll throw a lot of toys in them. They, they got to start, you know, reminiscing over their times with their toys. You know, I, I think at this point we should try anything. Yeah, if they could just, you know, something <laughs> not, like, like, yeah, like Cabbage Patch, at least there's no, there's no chance of any violence there. Cause like I, I worry no, GI Joe's, I worry GI Joe's that one of them may take sides, you know? Uh, yeah. There's, I You're figured right. there's gotta be something that they can all agree on somewhere. somewhere. Cause I, I even brought up like maybe if everybody likes pizza and then a friend of mine was like, no, somebody has got to be lactose intolerant. Like, they, they won't, you know, and I was like, Oh, you're yeah, right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You know? there's always uh, I want to ask you uh, about Love After Lockup because I find the show fascinating. Like, it's one of those things that as just as the, you know, the outsider, you're like, are you serious? Like, this person's in jail. Like, how are you in love with this person? They're in jail, you know? (laughs) So, um you know, what? you know what I, what I, we call that show um, "Scream at the TV." TV. Yeah. Um, okay. It's like when you used to watch Jerry Springer, and you were just like, "Wait, what are you doing?" And yeah. you would still watch it because it was so crazy. Um, right. But it was it was just absurd. Um, but I think what works about that show, again, you're always when you're storytelling, you're always looking for those universal tales. And I think what yeah. Love After Lockup has is the tale of bad decisions we all make horrible decisions particularly when it comes to our love lives and watching people try to navigate through those terrible decisions whether they like hang in there and and have hope or if they you know cut ties and try to go the opposite direction I think everybody can find somewhere in that to connect and to relate and then you're the show is so well produced the guys at Sharp do it and I, I used to work at Sharp they're really really savvy at this they are able to <laughs> they just make they allow everyone to be so real like they there's no filter so you're not trying to like clean up anybody's bad thinking or you're not trying to like correct or judge anyone's flawed outlook on things you really are they're presenting it as if everyone has a legitimate case to do what they're doing even though we all see this is really bad and yeah. We're in, and that hooks us in because we're like, okay, for some reason, this person believes in this. And there's something about watching someone who's really passionate about something just go all in and you see the, you see the, the obstacles ahead of them. You see all the pitfalls and you just want to watch. You're just watching this train wreck as it happens. But in the back of your mind, you're also remembering something you did very similarly to this person <laughs> on television and you're like oh shit did I look this stupid like it's crazy but you're in it and you're connected and you you just tag along and I personally find all the characters or the talent very endearing I think I think I think the show does a good job of like giving all the layers of everyone so mm. you try you sort of understand the psyche behind the decision making even if it's bad Anytime you have a relationship series or dating show, I mean, it's a universal theme, but, you know, it's all about that struggle to find the one, whether you're talking about the the bachelor, bachelorette, or married at first sight, like 
we have that universal desire to find the one or like, you know, if it's um, uh, a TLC show, maybe it's multiple people, but it's the struggle to get there. It's the struggle to get there that we're all kind of familiar. All right. So COVID has presented a number of issues, obviously, for whether you're a producer in the field, you're in post. From a development standpoint, what are you guys looking for now because of COVID or are you uh, adjusting your development slate due to COVID now that we're headed into 2021? What are you looking for as we TV? Well, we didn't really do the whole COVID shuffle like everybody, like a lot of other networks did. Like we didn't pivot to suddenly doing a lot of self-shot stuff or shows on Zoom and that sort of thing. Um, what we did, and I think we is is really good at this, they they get pretty invested. We get pretty invested long-term with the production companies we work with. So we have very strong bonds and relation, real relationships. So um, early on, we just had conversations with, with these companies that were producing content. Again, we're a smaller operation with only the two days of original programming. So we didn't have a ton of hours to fill. So it wasn't quite as daunting as some of the other networks um, had to deal with. But we had these conversations with our companies and we were like, listen, what's possible? Um, because we don't necessarily want to change um, the landscape of programming we have because it's really working. WeTV is, I think, ranking number one with black women on Thursdays um, and Fridays for the past like three or four years or something like that. So the the ratings for Love After Lockup are off the charts. Mama June's um, last season was really, really high. So we weren't really looking to, to change something that was really working. What we were trying to figure out from our producing partners was, you know, how can we still deliver on this content in this climate? And our, our the companies we work with were really savvy. Um, they got really ahead of the game with some of the new COVID protocols and procedures um, to be able to shoot these docu-series. Um, uh, the, the most obvious adjustment was just a smaller footprint, um, sure. going in with less people, being more nimble with your shooting. Um, we did lean into the self-shot footage a little bit more with talent that was open and amenable to it. Um, so, um, But that just helped us because our shows have a reputation for feeling very real. So when we are able to kind of sprinkle in some self-shot or producer cam type stuff. It didn't take away from the aesthetic of our shows. Um, and it didn't, I don't think, undermine the storytelling either. Um, so we just we just made small tweaks in how we were producing without, instead of doing a full upheaval of what we were producing. So we're still coming in. We're still looking for docu-series. We're still looking for projects that speak to relationships, be them family, um, be them lovers, be them friends. We're still pretty active in the space of like um, looking for experts, like people who are like these very bold and outlandish and unexpected um, uh, experts in their field. Like um, there are some dating experts and therapists, like people who have a different and unique approach to solving problems. Um, I sure. do think that that particular space, you know, where we're looking for experts, the COVID of it all has opened us up to, to taking in pitches that speak to like mental health issues, drug abuse, drug addiction, uh, relationships that are on the brink of disaster because people are tired of seeing each other. Um, yeah. You know, so 
to this climate has given us, has opened up our minds to um, the stories that we're telling, but how we're telling them is, is still pretty much the same. Still sticking with docu-series for the most part. We haven't really leaned into um, firm formats or anything like that. Okay, cool. Now, previously you were producing shows like Southern Charm New Orleans and Real Housewives mm -hmm. of Potomac, Girls Cruise. Now you are a very esteemed network executive. What is what has been the biggest adjustment that you're making from being a producer to now being an executive? And what are you seeing as kind of the, like, what do you miss? I didn't think I was going to miss the pace of it. Um, as a showrunner, executive producer, I think for um, close to 15, 20 years, something crazy like that, I had gotten so used to the aggressive pace of production life. Um, you know, we jump into a project, we push through, you know, a couple of weeks of pre-pro and then we grind through several weeks of production and then we like, um, <laughs> we try to survive um, the last leg of post-production and it's, it's grueling because you are shooting so much material, you're managing so much information and expectations, um, but you're just pushing at such a fast pace. When I crossed over into network, it was much calmer. Um, and I think it has to do with there being so, well, at least at WeTV, I can't speak for all networks. At We, there's a very collaborative approach to shepherding these shows. Like we really do work as a team. I work closely with the other VP of development and the um, couple of EPs in current um, to always talk through um, the expectations and some of the challenges that we have um, on our shows. We meet regularly as a team. Um, to just kind of support one another, give ideas for some of the challenges some of the shows may, may have, um, and that sort of thing. And, and that slows things down because there's not this, like, expectation of immediate answers. Um, at least at we, there's this opportunity to, like, let's sit down and let's come up with a solid plan um, instead of just reacting, reacting, reacting. When you're show running, or at least when I was, particularly for the Bravo shows that um, – there were very high expectations for all the shows. I also tended to work on new seasons. Um, so there was always this like anxiety around like, will they be successful? Will they be what we sold and all that kind of stuff. There is then this layer of like quick moves. Like you're just, you're making decisions. Yes, no, yes, no, all day because you got to get it done. Um, the budgets got tighter over the years. So that pressure cooker scenario just became, you know, tougher and tougher. Um, and so I, I will say that's probably the best part about crossing over, just the slower pace. Um, my life is different now. I have kids. I'm a like real adult. Um, it's <laughs> nice to like be able to turn work off at six o'clock, six thirty, versus before when I was in the field or even in the edit. It's twenty four seven. Like you're, right. you're especially when you're doing shows with celebrities. Like you're on call for them all the time. Um, and, and your network executives, you know, are reaching out to you whenever, like you just, there's no off button on the network side. I have an off button, which is really nice. What I miss though, what I really, really miss is set life. I miss the camaraderie and the bonding of your crew. And your cast. Yeah. Um, you really do become a family, particularly, especially if you work on a project over several seasons, um, yeah. you just really build this community. And um, I mean, I have, I have people I've worked with who are like my kids, like godparents, like it's, it, it's that deep and it's that intimate. 
um, and you're you're basically pulling off miracles on a daily basis. <laughs> so you yes. feel like you're yes. like you've been in the trenches with this person. Like this is my dog. Like we we go back, and I miss that um, because on the network side, especially now that we're we're remote, um, and we you know I haven't been in our offices since March. Um, that um, that camaraderie, it's it's just not the same. Um, the the office setting, the corporate setting, it doesn't even really allow for it. Like there's so much structure and organization that you don't get those like blurred lines of like I love you, man. Like you know what I mean? It's just a yes. different different vibe. Yeah. Um, so I do miss that. Um, but I I am I do feel confident that I moved over, crossed over at the right time. I, I felt like I. I came, I saw, I conquered. I, I don't regret <laughs> putting up my walk. <laughs> did, did you, almost like on Top Chef, when they hang up their, you know, they hang up yeah, their, their silverware, did you hang up your walkie? Mm-hmm. I hung up my walkie. I hung up my IFC. That was it. Wow. <laughs> I hope somebody shot it in slow-mo and there was a really dramatic oh, cue, right? And then somebody <laughs> rack-focused yeah. out, you know? Yeah, it certainly deserved that. It felt that yeah. way. It felt that way because um, <laughs> the last project I did, I've only I've been at We for a little over a year now. So the last project I wrapped was Girls Cruise with PH1, and that project was a very ambitious project, and it was um it was quite taxing. It, it we had heavy star power, Little Kim, Chili, Maya, um, got a show on a boat. It was, it was an aggressive post schedule. We were like grinding to get these shows to air. Um, it was a different kind of show for VH1. So there was lots of pressure to deliver a top notch show. And um, and we did, you know, we came together and we, we put something very special together. And at the end of the day, we were all proud of it and happy about it, but exhausted. And I was like, you know what? Um, I'm moving on. I'm and <laughs> And that was it. So I feel like I have my energy back now. I feel like, you know, as a creative, I I can contribute more um, in this mm-hmm. position because I'm not so tired. I, I told someone else had asked me a similar question. I said, you know what? I like being able to think again. As mm-hmm. a showrunner, you're, you're putting out fire. So yeah. you don't get as many opportunities to just be creative. In this position, especially since the pace is a little bit slower, I have the opportunity to really think about like the vision for the show you know what are the stories of these characters I can take my time and let my brain just kind of like you know fester on this stuff and come up with like some really cool ideas and then I can throw them at the showrunner and you know we can go back and forth and I like to be because I've been on the other side I do my best to be um, sensitive to the pressures that showrunners have on them um, and offer up a space where they can just think um, and think with me, and then we can collaborate and hopefully come up with something really, really cool. So I, I think the, the industry is going to get more out of me <laughs> than they did before. Well, that that's what's important. Um, when I heard about Girls Cruise, it like it's hard enough to deal with celebrities, but to put celebrities on a boat is like. <laughs> Uh, I just when I did like my first thought was wow like you just made the showrunners like like twice as hard because you cannot get away from these these celebrities. How tough was it to produce someone like Lil Kim or Chili when you you really couldn't get away from and you can't get away well, from no, anybody I'll, on a boat. 
No, you're right. So, so with me, cause I was, um, I was the executive producer and I, I started, I didn't go on the boat with them. You know, I have to credit Sylvester and Shane for being out there with them. Um, early, I just had my baby. And I remember early on, they were talking about if I should go on the boat. And I was like, is there any way I could just like start post early and I'll just <laughs> stay on the land and we can talk on the phone and we can just talk stories. Um, cause I, you know, I've been there before. Like I, I've done that kind of stuff. Um, in on past shows, like I remember, we did you know who wants to work for Diddy for VH1 some yeah. years ago. And yeah. like stuck in the house, and it, you just I was like I I can't. Um, however, I thought I was dodging a bullet, but the actual boat ride was only like ten or eleven days. So we you know we really somehow by the grace of God got enough footage for I believe ten episodes. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> when they came back. I thought I dodged the bullet because I was like, okay, we talked through all the story, we shot the scenes, now let's just get in post and make it happen. But we didn't have time on the boat to shoot interviews, um, <laughs> which, yeah. which meant I then became Chili, Maya, and Lil Kim's great friends for about four or five months of post um, shooting interviews to tell these stories. You know, managing talent, high level talent like that, who quite honestly, were exhausted from being on a boat and going through the, the shooting, the principal shooting process. Um, it was challenging to get everybody motivated and, and re-inspired um, to actually finish the project. Like, we, we, we aren't done, guys. I know you felt like that was everything, but right. we're actually, this is the meat of it. In post, that's the meat of it when you're doing the interviews and crafting the story. So I, got, I grew very close with Kim, uh, Chili, and Maya, actually. Um, Kim closer because I spent more time getting more material from her and she was the star of the show. So, um, you know, I had to figure out how the two of us could just connect and bond. Um, but that was probably the hardest part of the show. After the shooting, managing their schedules, I think Chili went on tour with TLC and Maya was um, acting on a, on a new project and Kim was about to release her album. So it was tough. And you had to become really close with them and have them respect you in order to get that out of them. And it, when it was all said and done, I was like, okay, I think that's a good time to, to go out. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Once it. You that yes, that sounds like it. You're hearing pitches now, right? Like, you know, before you're, you know, you're taking ideas and you're, you know, you're executing them. You are now hearing pitches. What is that like to kind of control ideas and whether or not they move forward? What's that power like? You know, it doesn't feel like power. At, at first, I thought it was going to feel like power. It now feels like a responsibility because now, particularly as, as a Black executive, I feel obligated to honor the opportunity. Um, because it does, people, everyone doesn't get to the pitch room. Everyone doesn't get the opportunity to have their project seen before me and the other execs and the president of the company. So, you know, when it gets to that level, I try not to be too dismissive of it, even if it's not that good. I try to take time to talk to the content creator, talk to the agent, talk to the producer about what's missing. You know, how yeah. could, how could we work on this and from what I hear that's not a common practice um, with development execs but I just feel like having been on the other side for so long and there's this like there's so 
so little information about how to pitch properly and how to pitch successfully that I, I feel the responsibility to teach that while I'm here, as long as I'm here. Um, so we can get some better content. Yeah. So, you know, it's not just the cycle of people getting a yes or no, a yes or no. It's a yes, if, uh, no, but, you know, so people can come back to the table. They don't feel so deflated. And uh, we're encouraging the creative process instead of, you know, making it such a, a gatekeeper scenario where people are so intimidated by it because we also have to be honest when you're working in linear television there are other places that these content creators can go now um with streaming and with digital we're we're not the last stop so i want to my i personally approach the job as making sure it's a welcoming space making sure people feel encouraged to keep coming back even if what they initially pitched isn't a good fit and to build those relationships because there may be something that comes up internally um, that we think is a great idea. And if I have built a relationship with a producer or an agent who I feel like could be a good fit for further developing this for us, then I can give them a call. Um, and it's not like a whole thing. I agree with you that a lot of times it's just a no or it's even worse than that. It's a, yeah. ooh, can you... Um, Ooh, can you do some casting for free and mm -hmm. then we'll make a decision knowing really that it's probably it's 99.9% a no, but we just want to make you jump through some hoops and then pass on the project. So I do, I always respect network executives who are just fully, you know, fully honest, but also have the like, well, here's why we're passing. But what we really like yeah. is this and here's what we're really looking for. Yeah, I, I try to do that as much as possible and and not let that quote unquote power go to my head because I've also, I mean, I've, as a showrunner for so long, I've seen a lot of executives come and go. So yeah. I don't take this position as like, you know, I don't, I don't take it lightly that at any moment it could be gone. So I just, I'm trying to do the most I can while I'm here just to help cultivate people's enthusiasm for creating really good stuff. I also, particularly for we, since we have so much Black content, um, encouraging Black content creators um, to come to the table. And if they aren't familiar with the process or if they haven't had um, the level of experience or exposure that some of their um, white colleagues have, just because of the lay of the land, a lot of Black producers and content creators haven't always had those opportunities if, if they get to me, I want to make sure we have a really fruitful conversation about how to make sure they stay in a position to keep coming to the table. You mentioned streaming. Now, WeTV is owned yeah. and operated by AMC Networks. Is there a plan? And I, and I may just may not be aware of it. What is, what is the plan for we, uh, for AMC in terms of, is there an up and coming streamer for AMC and all yeah. of its subsidiaries? Okay. Inform yeah. me, enlighten us. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, AMC, AMC plus is out there. Um, it's great. It's, it's a really good platform and they are definitely supporting it and leaning into it as a priority for the network. Um, Josh, our president, uh, there was a release in deadline, I think about how AMC as a whole is definitely prioritizing content and and focus in the streaming space for SVOD. 
Um, WeTV is right in line with it. Um, we'll be likely doing a lot more with sort of like a WeTV plus type of situation as well. There are other streaming networks that AMC owns. Uh, UMC is one that we've, we've developed and worked on projects together with, and I'm sure we'll continue to do more with them uh, moving forward um, as we embrace that, that S5 space and make sure it continues to work for us. So yeah, we're, um, we're definitely not shying away from it and just trying to make sure we stay with the ways of what's working right now. Nice. You're also an author, okay? You wrote a mm-hmm. book of daily devotionals, uh, mm-hmm. the, the Truth Wrapped in Love. I'm so impressed. Yeah. Tell me about this book and how you're able to find time amongst being a producer. You're now a mom. Uh, you're an executive. <laughs> how, how did this book come about? You know what? I think time for this book found me. Um, back in um, 2011, I was diagnosed with a very severe and debilitating neurological disorder called, um, and rare, I mean, that's how many people get this thing, um, called pseudotumor cerebri. Um, it, it really kind of shut me down. Um, I've never really been sick a day in my life. I've never really had major medical issues. And somehow this sort of like creeped up on me and caught me off guard. It was a disorder that it created a high level of cerebral spinal fluid in my brain and it wouldn't drain out. So it was collecting in my brain and it was um, essentially creating a mass that was putting pressure on my brain. And I, um, I suffered severe headaches and temporary blindness. And as you can imagine, as a producer, those would be issues. So that um, I, back in 2011, when I was diagnosed with it, um, I, it, it wouldn't allow me to work. I had to stop working. I've been working professionally since I was 17 um, in television. And before that, I've I, been working since I, was, since I was 14 at a bookstore. But I had to stop down and I had to figure out what was going on with my body because for the first few months of my symptoms, they could not figure out what was wrong with me. So I went to several hospitals across the country. I was at the Mayo Clinic. I was at Emory. I was at NYU. I was at John Hopkins with a lot of different doctors trying to figure out what was going on with my body. And uh, during that time, I mentioned earlier that I'm a Christian. During that time, I felt compelled to lean into my faith. And I was very close to my grandmother growing up. And I recall as a kid, whenever I couldn't sleep, she would say, just go read the Bible, baby. (laughs) And it wasn't really to like get me into like spiritual stories and, and understanding biblical tales. It was really because it was so boring. Um, reading it would like lull me to sleep because the language was so boring. And I almost heard her say that in one night when I was having really a, a lot of trouble sleeping. And um, there were nights when I was afraid to go to sleep because the headaches were so bad and my vision was coming and going. I was concerned I wouldn't wake back up. Um, and that there was one particular night where I felt that way and I, I felt like I heard her and I said, okay, I'm going to listen to the Bible. I couldn't read it because my vision was impaired. So I listened to audio books of the Bible and it would put me to sleep because like I said, it was just pretty boring. Um, and then one night, you know, I just kind of popped up out of my sleep as um, the story of Job 
was being recited in the audio book. And there's a, there's a scripture in there where he, he's pleading with God about how could this possibly happen to him because he had considered himself to be such a faithful follower of, and serve, servant of God. And, and God, you know, for those that know the story, God explained to him that he's sovereign. You know, he gives and he takes. And it, you know, Job can question it all he wants, but he'll never truly understand the scope of God's control over things. And you'll never truly understand why he's doing things and, and why things happen the way they happen. And, you know, if you're reading it, you know, the backstory is that God was using Job's life as an example of how, you know, Satan could never, ever truly undermine his purpose in someone's life because Job would go on to be a great um, testament and leader in um, Bible history. So I'm listening to that, it, it, a jump up, and I, I could connect with his desperation. And I felt, you know, suddenly I had a friend in this. I felt like someone understands me. Who is this Job guy? <laughs> and I was just kind of like pulled into the storytelling of it all. The Bible has some of the best stories. Um, and I found myself being much more alert um, and much more attentive to all the stories as I would let them play each night to put me to sleep. And it opened my mind um, in a revelatory way to the importance of love, love for self, love for God, and love for others, and how transformative that can be when you really allow love to manifest in all of its greatness in every aspect of your life. And I, I started just sort of like learning more about love, learning more about faith and applying it to how I was operating day to day. And I found myself feeling better. I didn't know medically if things were changing on the inside, but I knew emotionally I was feeling a lot better. I was feeling a lot more hopeful about my future because I certainly had dark nights where I felt like it was over. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I dug into like prayer life and meditation and that sort of thing. And I continued to read the Bible. I read the Bible from cover to cover. And lo and behold, my health started improving um, to the point where I went to my neurologist one day and he went to examine the swelling of my optic nerves, which was very severe. And he noticed that they had miraculously stopped. Wait a minute. Couldn't so no new treatment? No, no new treatment. No new treatment. They had me on these this cocktail of of pills that hadn't really been making any headway for about four months. I would go in every couple of weeks. He would check, no change, no change, no change. It wasn't getting worse, but it certainly wasn't um, coming down. But um, he will even attest to this. And this is uh, Dr. Muhammad Falavan is Islam. And he will tell you, I don't know what God or what praying was doing to Ashley's body, but it reacted. And perhaps it was a combination of the two. For those that are, you know, more into science, I would, I would even suggest that the, the, the de-stressing component of me sort of like focusing on faith and not being so concerned and anxious about what was happening to me probably mm -hmm. played the, the biggest part in just giving my body an opportunity to fix itself. And, you know, that's essentially what happened. Um, I went back to him. My optic nerve, has, the swelling has started coming down. Um, I maintained my medical regimen um, with the medicines they gave me, but I also continued to 
reimagine my life with far less stress in it, a much stronger and prioritized focus on being in love with myself and being in love with life and being in love with the world around me and the things that I do and the contributions that I make and just the whole perspective on my steps toward the future where they shifted. Anyone who knows me will tell you it's very hard for me to get upset about anything, for me to worry about anything, for me to be, it, it just, it would take a lot. And I found that even once everything sort of like remedied itself, um, this, took, this was like a six to eight month run of my body just kind of getting back to where it needed to be, um, where I could see again. I had my strength back, which would take me off the medication. Um, and there was no more um, high levels of cerebral spinal fluid. When I started to go back to work, that new attitude that I had about life and that new approach to how I was living was what I poured into the book. And I wrote the book essentially as a, a chronicle of what I had discovered when I was reading the Bible. And I, I tried to write it in, in plain speak um, so you could just kind of take a little tidbit each day of something I picked up on about what it means to love and what it, what it means to be at peace and to, and to be faithful so that you can approach life in a, in a different way. You're not chasing your day anymore. You're just allowing the day to operate under this realm of love. And I know it sounds like super tree huggery and <laughs> really yeah. weird and corny, but it works. And it, and it works for me. I found myself being far more successful in every aspect of my life um, once I made that shift. Um, and I, I still attest to that to this day, you know, waking up, not being angry, not being scared, not being anxious, eat, especially in the climate that we're in now, has proven to keep me healthy, number one, and to keep me uplifted so that I can continue to be creative, I can continue to be available for others and for my children, um, and continue to be effective as a change agent um, for circumstances and situations that are not going in the right direction. I feel confident when I'm allowed to enter into it, I can help turn things in a better and happier direction. That's a pretty incredible story. If you buy the book, you know, you'll you'll get into it. It's, what, it's okay, really here. Where can people get the book? The book, The Truth Wrapped in Love by Ashton McFarland Bowie, found on Amazon um, as it's with Kindle or you can order the heart coffee and you can also order it through my website ashleyandbuie.com unbelievable let me ask you this do Mm -hmm. you credit your your body healing due to prayer or do you think that you know the way that you kind of found a way to relax found a way to Mm -hmm. focus Mm -hmm. on healing that it was Mm -hmm. more the body healed itself because you almost like your mind kind of, I don't know. Like there are people who will swear yeah. that prayer heals, right? There's people who yeah. will tell you that. Do you think that, it, like, are you saying that that's what happened? I think what you're saying is prayer. I think, I don't think prayer is a hocus pocus situation. I don't think you walk to somebody and say, you're healed, you know, done, and then go right. off. I, right. I don't think that's how it works. I, I do believe that even when you study scripture and, you know, they say Jesus touches you and they walked away and they could walk. I think it has to do with how you're receiving that engagement. You now, because you have such faith in this guy named Jesus, when he touched you and he said, when I touch you, I'm going to heal you. 
your belief system and those those neurons flying through your brain and that um, everything in you, all the chemicals in your body are now relaxing and releasing and allowing you the shot at letting your body do what it does. I, I, I believe that our bodies are created in, a, in this very like miraculous, like crazy, fantastical way where if we let them, they can do a lot of the work for themselves, especially if we're feeding our bodies right, if we're exercising properly, if we're not overwhelming our bodies with stress and staying in high levels of chemicals just like bursting through every pore in our skin. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that, yeah, it gives your body the opportunity to do what it needs to do. Or I also believe like your body can tell you when it needs something else. Like when it's like, I really need iron. Like I think there's a way your body can like communicate that to you when you're still enough. And I think the prayer is the vehicle by which that can occur. I I, I think it's a, it's a holistic approach. It's not like this, like, oh, sure. you know, let me throw holy water on you. And now, you know, right. you're suddenly different. It's not yeah. magic. It's not a superhero story. It's a process of connecting with something bigger than you that yeah. exists in the energy around you. Your story is very inspirational and um, puts a lot of things in perspective, and hopefully it does for all of our listeners. All right, I, want, I always end the show just to talk about things that you're watching and things that the audience uh, should watch. And obviously... You work for WeTV, so um, <laughs> I'm sure there are some things that you would like people to watch. What is on WeTV yes. that everybody should watch? Okay. Um, WeTV, I am personally, I was a fan of WeTV before I started working for WeTV. Um, as a showrunner, I never even really had a lot of time to watch television, but the few shows I watched, I realized were on We. One of those shows are the Braxton Family Values. I've been watching Braxton Family Values since day one. I think it's a fantastic show. I think it has a great balance of like crazy, fun, loving sisterhood and all the drama and conflict that comes along with that. And I think this season, they're surprising us all by still delivering. Tamar Get Your Life was a spinoff a series, very controversial over the summer. Despite what the blogs have to say, this was a very real authentic approach at allowing Tamar to, to tell her story. And it's great. I think as a woman, um, you'll connect to what she is dealing with in her life with a uh, recent divorce and raising a kid and a new man and trying to find her purpose and her voice and all of that. It's like really, really rich stuff. So watch that. Love After Lockup is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, <laughs> just, I mean, it's, so good this season. Life After Lockup is really, really good. We have a couple of spinoffs coming that I think you're going to be really excited about. I can't announce Great. that, but they should be really fun. Um, so definitely keep watching those as well. So those are those are my WeTV picks. And not to overindulge in promoting other networks, but I personally watch a lot of scripted television because I found mm -hmm. as an unscripted storyteller, there are a lot of devices in scripted that, you, that become helpful. Um, we can apply them properly and unscripted. So I'm still a big Grey's Anatomy fan. Um, <laughs> so okay. I still watch Grey's. I still watch Grey's. And something else that finally came back I was excited about. I'm definitely a sappy This Is Us fan. So, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I always loved the pilot. I loved the pilot for This Is Us. I think it's one I of the best pilots ever. 
Yeah, I think it's one of the best pilots ever done. It's a little too I don't even emotional. think they matched it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a phenomenal pilot for anybody who hasn't seen it, but um, it's just too emotional for me. Like, it is... <laughs> It is. It's like that that show that like I I just can't takes too much out of me. It does. It drains that, me. That, I'm like, yeah, it I is. Always sit with my foster clinic. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a lot for you streamers. Um, CBS Access. I'm a big Trekkie, and okay. Discovery Discovery is their new series. I think it's in season three right now. It just premiered season three. It's so good. It is so good. I was so surprised at how good the show is, but it's really good. Right on. Okay. All right. Ashley, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Oh, I appreciate you sharing you. your this story. Yeah. Thank All you. Right, cool. I appreciate the opportunity to share it. I hope everybody enjoys it. And this is a great project you got going on. I'm going to okay. check out more of your podcast as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Now, for everybody out there listening, please subscribe download and rate the show it's available on apple Podcasts, spotify google play stitcher luminary and TuneIn. in you can also find it at believe.com and at believe podcast you can follow me on twitter at steve berkowitz and on instagram at steve m berkowitz you can also write a question to me if you have one and i will answer it on the show you email those questions to no script no problem podcast at gmail.com if you're interested in advertising on the show please contact believe at believe.com. Thanks to Mike Delay and Real Voice LA for the audio connection. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.